verse 27 uh, of chapter 12 of John tonight. Uh, and Jesus has kind of come to this climactic point. He's talking about his hour. Uh, I don't think he means specifically one hour or 60 minutes in time, but he means that uh, more broadly as the time for which he has come into the world, uh, the, the culmination of his earthly work. And he's approaching that hour, and I think he's in that hour really in this text as well. Uh, I shared this morning uh, his clarity in regards to the hour involving uh, the Son of Man's to be glorified. Then he speaks of the grain of wheat that falls into the earth and uh, produces fruit. And so it's, it's obvious that he's, the hour he's speaking of is the hour of his sacrifice, the hour of his death, his crucifixion. Uh, in verse 27, uh, he begins to unfold, I think, more of what's involved in that death, why this is such a significant hour. Uh, it's interesting because you know, passages like these, sometimes when I'm studying them, they, they tie together many others that uh, I remember uh, and they, they make sense of them or they make them more sensible to me, maybe would be a better way to say that. Some of those are of this one I'll touch on, it'll be in Romans 3, uh, also Ephesians 1, he was slain before the foundation of the world and uh, so many others. Uh, this is one of those passages that draws those together. Uh, in fact, I'm sure that those passages help my understanding of what Jesus is saying here as well. So let's read uh, verse 27. I may just read through 50, uh, but we'll try to just probably just cover from verse 27 to 36 tonight. Uh, but Jesus begins, now my soul has become troubled and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came out of heaven. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. So the crowd of people who stood by and heard it were saying that it had thundered. Others were saying an angel has spoken to him. And Jesus answered and said, this voice has not come for my sake, but for your sake. Now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of the world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. But he was saying this to indicate the kind of death which he was to die. And the crowd then answered him, We have heard out of the law that the Christ is to remain forever. And how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, For a little while longer the light is among you. Walk while you have the light, so that the darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. While you have the light, believe in the light, so that you may become sons of light. These things Jesus spoke, and he went away and hid himself from them. But though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. This was to fulfill, now listen to this passage carefully. I'll come back to this uh, in another message, but listen to this carefully. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah, the prophet, which he spoke. Lord, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason they could not believe. For Isaiah said again, He has blinded their eyes, and he has, uh, there's the word eyes again, seeing. He has blinded their eyes, and he has hardened their hearts, so that they would not see with their eyes, and perceive with their heart, and be converted, and I heal them. Now, this is interesting to me, but then these things Isaiah said, because he saw his glory. 
and he spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the rulers believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. And Jesus cried out and said, He who believes in me does not believe in me, but in him who sent me. He who sees me sees the one who sent me. I have come as a light into the world so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my sayings and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive me, uh, excuse me, he who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has one who judges him. The word I spoke is what will judge him at the last day. For I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what I say and what to speak. I know that his commandment is eternal life. Therefore, the things I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. So I just read that because I wanted you to pick up on this, this idea of seeing again uh, even further here. Uh, regarding the one who sees me. So, but I want to keep my attention tonight on verses 27 through 36, uh, particularly thinking about the hour itself. Uh, in fact, I, I would just, uh, I entitled the message tonight, The Hour. Um, but what I'm looking at is, is, is I'm looking in the text to see what's significant. What is Jesus saying about that hour? Uh, what is he drawing their attention to in regards to that hour? And the first one is obvious. You see that in verse 27. Uh, we know already that the hour is the hour, uh, the, the hour that is coming, the hour of his death, the hour of the crucifixion, and ultimately the resurrection. But verse 27, in regards to this hour, it is an hour of trouble, troubling soul for Jesus. He says, now my soul has become troubled, and what shall I say? Uh, I, I was thinking about that particular passage, and I don't know that we can plumb the depths of the trouble of soul that involved, was involved in Jesus here. Uh, in fact, it ought to be humbling to us and in some ways cause a lot of solemnity in regards to this hour uh, because the soul of Jesus was troubled. Now, I don't know in his fullness of his humanity, certainly there must have been some recognition of the physical suffering that was going to be involved in the crucifixion. They were going to rip his beard from his face. They were going to uh, scourge him, which was uh, maybe one of the most painful things prior to the crucifixion itself. And then they want to hang him upon a cross where uh, he would ultimately be, be asphyxiated, would be the cause of death. But all, on top of all of that, the draining of blood, so the, the physical pain yet awaiting him. Jesus was familiar, as were all the Jews, of what crucifixion looked like. Uh, and that was what was before him. So perhaps it was a troubled, a troubling in his humanity, in the dread of the pain that was yet ahead of him. Perhaps it was deeper. Perhaps it was a spiritual trouble. Here's one who has never known sin, never known a moment's uh, interruption in his fellowship and his communion with the Father who was about to uh, experience that at least for the moment or take sin upon himself and in that moment experience some, some uh, vagueness in regards to that communion. Perhaps that was it. And, and I really think we just can't plumb the depths of the trouble of soul that Jesus had here. But this hour Jesus is acknowledging has produced in him a troubled soul. But then he asked in regards to that, 
Uh, it's also, I think, an hour, uh, this is my word, not Jesus, but it is an hour of, of decreed. It is a decreed hour, or you might say a destined hour, uh, a fateful hour. Because he says here, my soul has become troubled. And then he asked the question, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. And then he goes on to say, but for this purpose, I came to this hour. So the hour was certainly an hour that provoked a troubledness or a troubled soul in Jesus Christ. But in, in, even in light of that, he says, but what am I going to say? Father, deliver me from this hour. How can I say that? This hour is the very reason that I have come. And so I think it's an hour that is, we need to reflect upon the hour as both decreed by God, by the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit. All are involved in this hour. Jesus is fulfilling now the purpose for which he came into the world. It is destined in the eternal counsels of God that this hour should come about. And yes, this hour is producing a troubled soul in Jesus, but he's saying, what am I going to say? Deliver me from this? I mean, this is the reason I have come into the world. So he's not going to be delivered from this. He's not going to request a deliverance for this. He's bound or he's determined that he is following through with the purpose for which he's coming to the world. So this is a significant hour in that he indicates to me here that this is an hour that was decreed from all eternity in the, in the, in the council of the Godhead. This is the day that was unfolding. In fact, I quoted from Psalm 118 this morning as they were quoting as well. But that passage says, uh, this is the day the Lord hath made. Well, that day is referring to this hour that is approaching. In fact, before that, he says, the stone which the builders rejected, he has come to chief cornerstone. This is the day the Lord hath made. Marvelous is it. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. It's not, we can say the Lord in one sense makes every day. We ought to rejoice and be glad in every day. But when you quote that, just understand this is the day. That's the day he's talking about. This is the hour of the day that the psalmist was prophesying in regards to in Psalm 118. And they, what's amazing to me that really is they were citing the psalm this morning, but it seems as though they are completely oblivious to, to that part of the song. This stone is going to be rejected. Well, why didn't you remember that part? But they just, uh, he tells us later on, Isaiah uh, gives us some indication, but their eyes were blinded and their hearts were hardened, uh, he says later on here in John. So two things already, it is an hour of trouble for the soul of Jesus, but it's also an hour that Jesus acknowledges here has been decreed and it is destined. Shall I ask for deliverance, he says, but then he answers his own question. That's rhetorical. Of course not. I won't ask for deliverance, for this is the very reason I have come into the world. In verses 23, also in 28, it is also an hour, uh, an hour that will feature the manifestation of the glory of God. In fact, verse 28, Jesus says here, Father, glorify your name. In other words, rather than me asking the Father to save me from this hour, I'm acknowledging for this hour I have come into the world. And obviously, whatever's going to happen in this hour is to the glory of the Father. So he says, Father, glorify your name. So that's what the hour is for. The hour that is coming is for the display or the manifestation of the glory of God. 
Uh, in fact, uh, I quoted this morning, 2 Corinthians uh, uh, 4, and those verses in there, they, that's what they indicate, that there is a glory manifest that we can't see because of the veil over our eyes. And Jesus knows it very well. This is the, this is the hour that the Father will be glorified in the Son. In fact, if you back up in verse 23... It is also the hour that the Son of God, uh, the Son of Man is to be glorified. So both the Son and the Father are to be glorified in this hour. So if I'm looking at that hour, and this is important, if I'm looking at that hour and scrutinizing the hour, I need to be alert for manifestations of the glory of God and the glory of Christ. I think sometimes we get caught up in the, in the Passion Week narratives and even the preaching of those narratives as we should, and we should be caught up in those uh, amazingly. But I wonder sometimes, are you, are you seeing, beholding the glory on display on the cross? We grieve at the suffering of Christ and our hearts mourn. And in many cases, when we contemplate that, we weep at the suffering of Christ. But at the same time, those things are appropriate responses to the suffering of our Lord and Savior. But do you behold, are you seeing the glory? Jesus said, I'm not going to ask for salvation from this hour. This is the hour I came into the world for. So therefore, Father, glorify your name. And that's critical. The manifestation of glory, as I've already said, is not only the glory of the Father, but the glory of the Son of Man or the glory of the Son of God even. So I think there's a glory manifested in the life of Christ, this Christ who walked in his humanity submissive to the Father, not uh, as Philippians says, he's setting aside his privileges, but walking as fully man, submitted to the Father, obeying the Father even unto the point of death. He's come to this hour as the Son of God, the Son of Man. He is yielding and submissive to the Father to carry out the Father's purposes. So he says in this moment, I'm not asking for deliverance, I'm going through with this. So therefore, Father, through this, through this hour, manifest the glory of your own name. And in doing so, it also manifests the glory of the Son of God himself, the glory of Christ. I've often thought about walking the, the way Jesus walked. If, if there's an example of what Christian submission should look like, Jesus is the perfect example of what it looks like to walk in obedience to the Father. In fact, he says later on, I've already read this, if anyone hears my sayings, verse 47, and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come in to judge the world, but to save the world. Uh, verse 49 is where I'm getting at. For I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. And so that's what he's doing. He's walking in submission to the Father, and he's speaking what the Father has given him a commandment to speak. That's the hour that is culminating, about to culminate here. And Jesus says this is an hour for the display of the glory of God. Interestingly enough, in verse 28, then a voice comes out of heaven, I have both glorified it. Uh, I was referred there uh, in my thinking to the baptism of Jesus where um, all the, the spirit descended as a dove and, and stayed there. And there was a voice from heaven that said, Behold, this is my beloved son. Uh, hear ye him uh, with whom I am well pleased. Uh, so so he is all, he's glorified it in a sense in that way. And now he's going to glorify it again. So it is about the glory of God. Notice as well, I think it's interesting and you probably saw this, but the, so the crowd of people who stood by heard it were saying that it had thundered. 
And others were saying an angel had spoken to him. So something about the crowd was unusual here because this voice came. In fact, Jesus later says this voice didn't come for my sake. This voice came for your sake. But some of you heard it as thunder, indiscernible, but, but noise. There was something that got your attention, but it was, it was intelligible to you. And others said, no, it was, an, it was, it was uh, understandable, but it was an angel. And so it, it seems to be some confusion in regards to the people who were around in regards to this voice. Some heard it more clearly. Some heard what was said. Some heard it as thunder. And so it says something about the condition of those who were gathered there. But Jesus, clearly that is part of the manifestation of the glory of God here. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. So verse 30, Jesus answered and says to them, this voice has not come for my sake, but for your sakes. And that introduces what I would call an hour of immutable consequence. Now, this is where I want you to really think tonight. He says to them, this voice has not come for my sake, but for your sakes. So whatever, whether it sounded like thunder or whether you thought it was an angel speaking to him, this manifestation of this affirmation of Jesus Christ in this point was not for the sake of Christ, but for the sake of you. In other words, what you heard was for your sake. And he goes on to say to them as if, as though that is some sort of signal, verse 31, which I think is the monumental part of this text, because he says regarding this hour that now judgment is upon this world and now the ruler of this world will be cast out. He goes on in verse 32 to say, if I and I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. Now I'm saying here it is an hour of immutable unchangeable consequence. This is where, this is what ignites my heart about this hour. This is, this is the culmination of a decree of the Godhead to bring about the redemption uh, and the redemption of God's elect. And this is an event that has immutable consequences. There's no changing what this event accomplishes in this moment. He says here, now judgment upon it is upon this world in this event. In this hour is the manifestation of judgment upon this world. And in this same hour, the, the God of this world is being cast out as it were. And so it's interesting because later Jesus says, I didn't come into the world to judge the world but that the world might be saved through me. He says the same thing uh, earlier in the gospel of John as well. And so it's, it's monumental what he's saying here. This is the hour has come. The hour we know is the hour of his dying and his troubling of soul to him, but yet he will not ask the Father to deliver him from this hour because it was for this singular hour that he has come into the world. And, and so he says, Father, therefore in this hour glorify your name. And then the voice comes and confirms that and says, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. The events that are unfolding are going to do that. And these people hear this comment and Jesus says to them, that wasn't for me. I'm in communion with the Father. I already know these things. That was for your sake. It was a signal to you that the event, the thing that's about to take place is monumental and has immutable consequences. 
And this is where these other passages come to mind because when, when Paul writes in Ephesians, he was slain before the foundation of the world. We were chosen in him before the foundation of the world. Well, when did that happen? And what I, what I think he means here is that this is the decisive historical unfolding of what had been decreed from the very beginning. That this is, this is the event in which the elect are secured and which those uh, who are not and reject Christ, is, their fate is assured. This is a singular event around which all of these things revolve. Everyone who has ever been saved, everyone who ever will be saved, it is accomplished in this event. This event. Now, in the, in the economy of God, that was sure a certainty from the foundation of the world. But it is manifest now in time. Everything revolves around this, via, this event. Therefore, the judgment of God in regards to that is upon the world in this hour. That's what I understand that to mean. Uh, let me uh, read uh, from Romans chapter 3, you don't have to turn there, it's brief, but Paul writes here in Romans chapter 3, beginning of verse 21, about, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's the condition of humanity. That's the condition of humanity. But God in his decrees has chosen the, to choose to himself a people out of those from the foundation of the world. And his choice of them is in Jesus Christ who is now upon the earth in the flesh approaching the hour by which the purchase is made in history. And so he says here, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly, listen carefully here, whom God is displaying publicly in this hour as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was, it says, to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, Paul says, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he, speaking of God here, would be just and the justifier of he who has faith in Jesus. And then Paul goes on, on the basis of that then, where is boasting? It's excluded. By what kind of law of works? No, but by a law of faith. What I'm, the reason I'm reading that for is that that's, that's what's happening in this hour. That's why it's so monumental. And that's why I say that what is accomplished upon the cross is immutable. Those whom he has chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world and has brought to himself through the sufferings of Christ, it is immutable that they should be lost. And, and at the same time, those who, whom have not been chosen before the foundation of the world, their faith in the same event is assured. They will reject Christ and therefore the judgment of the cross is there upon them as well because it is accomplished there. Do you see what I'm saying there? I mean, that's, that is sobering. If you're here in 2023 
and you are a born-again believer, if you see with eyes that He gives us, if your heart's been softened to the gospel of Jesus Christ and you have received Christ as your Savior, that immutable condition was accomplished and purchased in this hour. In this hour. I mean, that's what the psalmist is saying. The chief cornerstone has been, uh, they've rejected this chief cor- or this stone and he has become the chief cornerstone. That's the day of the Lord. That is the glorious day of the Lord. And oh, how marvelous it is in our eyes. Their rejection of their stone and that stone that they rejected becoming the chief cornerstone, that's the day. This is the hour. This is the hour. Uh, I'm amazed at that sometimes and quieted in some ways in my thinking and overwhelmed and just overtaken with awe in the reality that in the, in the providence and the sovereignty of our great God, that what was decreed from the foundation of the world came to pass in time in the person of Jesus Christ in a singular event. And in the very event where I am being purchased, as it were, out of my sinfulness into the light of God, at the same event, all those who reject Christ's condemnation is assured. And I say that because in John chapter 3, he tells us that. This is the judgment that light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. So they reject the light because their deeds are evil. The only thing to overcome that is the same event that exposes the light. That's what I think Paul is saying there in, in, in Romans chapter 3. He say, look in this one event... Jesus is on public display, as it were, of the vindication of the righteousness of God. Because someone might say, well, what about all those sins in the past that he passed over? He didn't pass them over. He didn't forget about them. They are real. And in this one event, God is vindicated in his righteousness and at the same time is displayed as merciful. How? In this hour. By this man. And Jesus Christ is the display both of the justice of God upon the cross and the mercy of God upon the cross. That's this event. That is this hour. And that is what I say makes it immutable what was accomplished in that hour. That's glorious to me. If I have great-great-grandchildren perhaps who are not even born into this world who before the, before the foundation of the world have been chosen in Jesus Christ, do you realize that their salvation is rooted in the same hour as mine? And mine is rooted in the same hour as Abraham's. And every, every other one who has ever come to Christ or come to God and, and been brought back into fellowship with God. This is the event. This is the person. These are the circumstances that purchase that salvation for them. And it'll be, the, it'll be the seminal event in the lives of those who reject Christ and find themselves in an eternal hell. This will be the central event that made those two conditions immutable. There will be no second chances in hell. There will be no coming back from hell for another shot at this. There was a singular event and Jesus is saying, am I going to ask for deliverance from this hour? This is why I came. And if I don't go through to this hour, that none of those immutable consequences will be available. All men will be under condemnation without hope for deliverance if I do not go to this hour. 
I think that's what he's saying here. And then the same thing, and now the judgment is upon this world. He says, now the ruler of this world will be cast out. I certainly think the, the, the power of Satan was restrained in that event as well. You could project that into the future because in that same event is the conquering of the devil. It's the conquering of death, even itself. So in that very real sense, this is the event by which he will be cast out. Now, there is an unfolding of that. There will be an ultimate casting out of him, and all these things are unfolding. But this is the event from which they are unfolding. And that, to me, that, that again reasserts the surety of those things. Will he be cast out? I don't know. Yes, you do know. How do you know? Because of the cross. Because of Christ upon the cross. You can assure yourself that the devil will ultimately be cast into the pit that, that he, where he belongs and that's where he'll spend eternity. And you can be just as sure that having been redeemed in Jesus Christ by faith through the grace of God, you will not enter into that same condemnation. How do we, how, what event assures us of both of those things? This hour. This hour. Notice in verse 32, which has always been a difficult passage for me. He says, and I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. Interestingly enough, afterwards, they don't get that. What do you mean lifted up? We were celebrating this Messiah who's going to be king. What do you mean lifted up? Who is this son of man that's going to be lifted up? But Jesus is saying very clearly here, it says, John gives us a commentary, but he was speaking in, in regards to the type of death he was going to die. So Jesus is clearly saying, I'm going to die. That is the event. This is the hour, that is the event in which all of these immutable consequences are going to arise out of there. All the decrees of God will be fulfilled and assured in this singular event. And, the, and the, the event is going to involve the lifting up of the Son of Man. So in what sense will he draw all men to himself? Obviously, for the believers, we know that uh, we cannot come to Christ unless the Father draws us. Jesus himself said that. For, so clearly, for the believers, it's the lifting up that, that produces the effect that we can be drawn to him. In other words, it is the sacrifice by which the Father can draw us now to fellowship to himself through Jesus Christ. So there's a drawing that is going to be a result of his having been lifted up. But there's another sense in which the lifting up of Christ sets down a stake, as it were, in the universe. Everyone, in some sense, is going to have to reckon with this event, this person this crucifixion, this death, and this resurrection. Even the lost men are not going to be excluded in the sense to, where, to an accountability to this event here. In fact, I believe there will be a sense in which this event will be exhibit A in their condemnation. If whatever good works you may have done, this event stands proud over all those things. Whatever charitable things, whatever denominations you belong to, whatever wonderful, kind things, however great a mother or father you were, all of those things are going to be drawn into contrast with this event. And they're going to be compared, as it were, to what's happening upon the cross. And if there's the absence of that being your purchase, then none of those things are going to be sufficient for you. So in some ways, the lifting up of Christ is drawing in that way as well. I think generally I could say that the entire universe and reality itself 
circles or rotates around this singular event of God coming to earth in human flesh and being lifted up upon the cross and dying upon the cross and being raised from the dead. Everything, everything is, that is central to all reality. And I think that's the broadest meaning of what he means here, that if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto myself. If he's not lifted up, you and I are not coming to God. We're not coming back into fellowship with a God against whom we have been rebellious from our very birth. He brings that restoration. He says in verse 33, John's commentary, but he say he was saying this to indicate the kind of death which he was to die. Again, the crowd, verse 34, answers him, We've heard out of the law that the Christ is to remain forever. And how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? And so Jesus, instead of asking specifically, begins this discourse in verse 35. So Jesus said to them, For a little while longer the light is among you. I believe he's speaking of himself here. Walk while you have the light so that the darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. While you have the light, believe in the light so that you may become sons of light. Now, I don't think that's coincidental that he speaks that way after pointing to the significance of this hour that he's coming to. In other words, you're in the presence, you are, you are under the influence of light. I have come into this world of light. John begins his gospel saying, this was the true light that coming into the world enlightens every man. So this is the true light. And the true light is speaking profound realities to you. And they don't understand that. What do you mean lift it up? We, we read the scriptures and it sounds like the Messiah is going to go on forever. Well, he is, but he's going to depart first and come back and rule uh, reign forever. But he's got a cross to go through before he ascends that throne. So they're right in one sense, but they misunderstood or they rejected apparently or weren't thinking of Isaiah 53 because that king has to be the suffering servant as well. In fact, I've read somewhere not very long ago that uh, in Jewish circles, some, some call that the forbidden chapter. It's almost as if we don't know what that means, but it sure does challenge the things we believe. So we're just going to not work with that one. Well, you not working with it caused you to miss this hour. Because he is indeed going to take the throne, but the pathway to that is through the cross. And so he says to them, for a little while longer... The hour is at hand, the light is among you. While you have that light, he says to him, walk, uh, while, walk while you have that light. Conduct yourself, take advantage of the, the, the display of the light that is before you. In the words that I have just spoken and in the very miracles you've been witnessing and in the presence in which you are, walk while you have that. He goes on to say, why? So that the darkness will not overtake you. The implication there is if we do not walk while we have the light, then the darkness will indeed overtake us. And then he says to them, he who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. And while you have the light, believe in the light so that you may become sons of light. And then John asked Jesus these things Jesus spoke and he went away and hid himself from them. I'm going to continue on through 37 because I want to connect these two. So I want you to think about this. But though he had performed so many signs before them, yet here again we see they were not believing in him. 
This is what's, like I said this morning, this is what's so profound to me. Because they, these were shouting Hosanna. God saves. They were quoting passages. Had they went back and read the passages that they, later that day, they would have understood that there were implications in that passage regarding this one they were praising that, that suggest at least that there was going to be some suffering involved. But they were oblivious to that. So it seems as though throughout this passage there is a believing that is not a believing. There is a believing that is not is not a conversion, as it were. There is a believing that, is, that believes things about and even words about him, but it is unbelieving in another way. And so he says here, though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. And then John gives us this explanation. There's a reason for that. There's a reason that they could see all the signs and even follow him, and even shout Hosanna as though he is the fulfillment of Psalm 118 and Zechariah 9.9. They can say true things about Jesus, but yet they're not believing. And John understands the reason for that. He says here in verse 38, This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, which he spoke. In fact, this is the beginning of Isaiah 53. Lord, who has believed our report? Who has believed that? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? So he's connecting a revelation here to the believing. Who has believed the message? Then he, he's not just parallelism here. He's adding an, a nuance to that. Not a, the implication is if they're believing, then the arm of the Lord has been revealed to them. But nobody's believing. Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? If you read back, by, by the way, to Isaiah 41, it speaks of Christ or this one who is to come as an arm of the Lord. So, so John is saying the reason they're not believing is to fulfill this. I mean, they're lining up perfectly with the, with the source of the suffering of the servant in Isaiah 53. They're not believing the report. And the reason is that the arm of the Lord has not been revealed to them. John goes on to say in verse 39, For this reason they could not believe. For Isaiah said again, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts. Now, people's minds go back to Pharaoh because it's said of Pharaoh that he hardened his own heart and his own mind. And at the same time it's said that God hardened his heart and his own mind. So, so there's a dual thing happening there. Uh, there is the sovereign hand of God who hardens heart and, 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 and loosens and softens hearts and blinds eyes and opens eyes to, to bring about the events that fulfill what he has decreed will be. But this does not relieve those who are hardened of heart and blinded in their eyes of their own responsibility because they hardened themselves, just as Pharaoh did. And I think that's what John is saying here. First of all, they're not believing so that these things might be fulfilled. And the reason they're not believing is that God, to fulfill these things, has hardened their hearts and blinded their eyes. Paul goes on to tell us there's a hardening happening to them so that the Gentiles might come in. So God is decreeing and ordaining these things, but, but God is not uninvolved in this. And he says, he has blinded their eyes and he has... Uh, Harden their heart so that they would not see. That's what struck me. We're back to the seeing thing. There's a reason for that is that they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted and I heal, heal them. Verse 41. And I love this. 
Because these things Isaiah said, Isaiah said because he saw his glory. He saw his glory. You remember at the beginning of Isaiah, I think it's chapter 6, where Isaiah is brought by the Spirit, brought into the temple, and he comes there, and all of a sudden the, the, the pillars of the temple are rattling, and there's smoke fills the temple, and Isaiah is, Isaiah is terrified in the presence of the glory of the Lord, and he falls flat on his face, and the angels are flying about there, and the, and the cherubim, and they are saying, glory to God, glory to God, and back and forth, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. And Isaiah is experiencing all these things, and his response is, I always use this language because I understand the Greek, uh, the Hebrew there indicates a rug being unraveled. And Isaiah falls on his face and says, Oh, the presence of the holiness of the Lord. I am being taken apart thread by thread in this glory. Isaiah saw that. Isaiah saw that. And I think prophesying, looking into the future, he's hearing, he's hearing as it were, these, these professions and these exclamations and these, these claims that they see Jesus, but he knows they're not seeing anything of Jesus because I've seen the glory and they're not seeing it. And the only reason I can understand that they can't see it is that the God has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts to behold it for his own purposes. Because Isaiah knew that he himself would not have seen it unless the Lord had carried him by the Spirit and revealed it to him. And Isaiah's response to that was, woe is me. I am an, un, I am an undone. I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. So Isaiah, John is saying that Isaiah said these things because Isaiah saw the glory of God. And so he's prophesying in regards to this generation that obviously the reality is they're not seeing the glory of God. And it is, this is the striking thing, it is this very hour that is making the purchase of their sight to behold it. If this hour doesn't happen, they never will see it. Not only has God in his providence hardened their heart to bring about the events that are resulting in the conclusion of this hour, but they themselves has hardened their own heart and blinded their own eyes in their sinfulness. They are exalting, as it were, in their own corrupt nature. And so they are fully responsible for the hardening of their own heart and their own eyes. And that that is done to fulfill the purposes of God is certainly within the prerogative of a sovereign, prerogative of a sovereign God. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and he spoke of him. Verse 42, nevertheless, many, he says, even of the rulers believed in him. But here's why I'm talking about belief. Because he says, but because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him for fear that they might be put out of the synagogue. And then he tells us here, they're believing, but they love the approval of men rather than the approval of God. So is that the equivalent of New Testament belief? I mean, we covered it in the kids' class this morning. Any man who does not love me more than he loves father and mother and wife and children and, and brother and sister, yea, even his own soul cannot be my disciple. So, so it's striking that he says there's a way of believing that is not believing to the point of overcoming the fear of man. In fact, they're, they're saying that I'm believing, but I'm still loving the approval of men more than the approval of God. So what, what's the remedy for that flawed belief? this hour. That's exactly why he's come. Because that is the way you and I will believe. 
We'll believe a set of concepts. We'll even believe a prophecy. But we will not believe it to the, to the abs- in the absence of the fear of man. We will still like the approval of man. And we will adjust our beliefs to accommodate the approval of man. And that's exactly what the Pharisees wanted to happen. You can believe, but believe as we tell you to believe. Or else we'll put you out of the synagogue. Well, I don't want to be put out of the synagogue. And so I won't, I won't confess openly or live with abandon towards my belief in this Jesus Christ. But this hour is how Jesus overcomes this fear of man and this desire for the approval of men over the God. Verse 44, I'll just conclude with these thoughts here. In the context of all of this, Jesus cried out and he says to them, speaking very plainly, by the way, here, he who believes in me does not believe in me, but in him who sent me. Notice the seeing here. He who sees me sees the one who sent me. I have come as a light into the world so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my saying and does not keep them, I don't judge him. I don't judge him. For I did not come to the world to judge, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has one who judges him. The word I spoke is what will judge him at the last day. Um, that's always struck me as just a stunning statement. Words: I'm speaking the truth and you do not receive me. I'm not going to judge you. In fact, I didn't come into the world to judge you. I came into the world to speak the truth and to, and to fulfill the purpose for which I came into the world. And if you reject me, there's one going to judge you someday. It's the word that I speak. That's going to be brought back as exhibit A and certainly this event. All that I have said to you, that will be your judge in that day. Why did you not believe? Why did you not believe? Your, your unbelief displays the condemnation and judgment upon your own heart already. Verse 49, Jesus says, For I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. I know that his commandment is eternal life. Therefore, the things I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. So he begins this and he concludes here speaking very plainly and very clearly and succinctly in regards to what's what's being purchased in this hour and Jesus says this hour is here and we know that it's within a week that Jesus is going to the cross and all this is going to happen in that moment here's why I say I was thinking on the way here tonight and earlier this afternoon we are probably all guilty of not not comprehending or not not recognizing the glory on display at the cross. We we think of things, and they may be true things, but there's so much more happening on a cosmic level there. I mean, there's an exchange. There there are decrees unfolding and being fulfilled. There is the, the manifestation of the eternal counsel of the Godhead. There is the redemption of sinners, the condemnation and the casting out of the, of the God of this world. There, is, there are massive, massive, immutable realities taking place as a result of what's happening upon the cross. And if you look at the cross of Christ and you just say, gosh, that was brutal and they were so mean. 
And he just loved us and, and he just wanted to love us. You haven't even begun to, to wade into the ocean of glory on display there. I mean, it's saying something about God himself upon the cross. As Romans chapter 3 says, it's a display. It is God through his son declaring to the world that I am righteous. I do not overlook sin. Sin is judged. But oh, I am merciful. I am merciful because gloriously in the very same event, both the righteousness of God is vindicated and the mercy of God is displayed in that same person, in that same event. Now you tell me what man would have devised such a plan as that. The Roman Catholic Church didn't devise one like that. No other... No, no false religion out here has devised a plan like that. In fact, all of them put the emphasis on what you do to ascend up to God. Christianity, biblical Christianity, is the only one that declares the glory of what He alone has done to bring you into fellowship with Him. I mean, that's glorious. And I, I don't know about you, but I don't want one iota of credit in that. Do you? I mean, I want to just rest and behold the glory of it all. And I want Christ to be exalted in my view. I want to see him as exalted and more and more as glorious as he is. And the more I see him clearly, the more I realize that I have no contribution to that. I have only, by the very event of the cross, been given the capacity to respond in faith to that. The very faith by which I believe is being purchased in that hour and given to me. So you are, in fact, in fact, in reality, saved by grace through faith. Not of yourselves, not originating within you, not worked up by you not discovered in your intellect. It is a grace of God that has brought about faith in you by which you are joined to Christ and become partaker of what was happening 2,000 years ago upon a cross in, on Calvary outside of Jerusalem. You have been united to Him. And as, here's my favorite thing about this passage of Scripture. That's immutable. That is unchanging. God didn't ordain these events from the foundation of the world, bring them to pass in history, cause all of reality to circle around this, this singular event in all of human history, all of the universe, all of eternity, only to have you cast off at the last moment who have believed. You are secure, believer. You are absolutely secure. And, and you will enter into the fullness of the kingdom of heaven. Not because of how wonderfully you do. We ought to have works. We ought to be sanctified. In fact, our lives ought to give indication that we are indeed have been joined to Christ. We ought to be born again. But it is not our, it is not our doing of those things that assure our entrance into the kingdom of God. It is this hour. It is this event. In all of your Christian life, in all of your transformation, in all of your Christ-likeness, from the day you were born again to the day you enter into the fullness of the kingdom of heaven, the, uh, the power for that to happen in your life was happening right here. What did Jesus say? It is expedient that I go away. 
For if I do not go away, then the Holy Spirit can't come to you. He can take up residence in you. I remember hearing someone one time uh, talking about, uh, remember when Jesus was raised and Mary finds him in the garden, she hangs on to him and she don't want him to depart. And he says, I must depart for I must go to the Father. And, and they, they make some kind of mystical thing out of that. Uh, in, va- in fact, I think they tied it to some sacrifice and those things. But I think it was as simple as this. Mary... <laughs> If I stay here, you've got me. You've got me embraced. But if I go to the Father, this same experience can be the experience of every believer through the Holy Spirit who indwells. Mary, you want to hold on to me now, but I'm saying let me go to the Father. I'll send the Spirit back to you. And not only will you have me dwelling within you, every other believer will have the same fullness of Christ in the person of the Holy Spirit dwelling in them. Mary, let me go for your own sake. Your intimacy will be intensified if I go to the Father. In fact, I think the sacrifice had already been made in fact, I think it had already been received had it not been. Death would not have had to have let go of Christ and the resurrection would not have been possible unless the death penalty, the death's penalty was paid. In fact, the resurrection is proof that the sacrifice was paid. The sacrifice was sufficient. The debt was paid. Therefore, death could no longer hold him. He rises from the grave and ascends to the Father and through the Holy Spirit, that same Christ in the person of the Holy Spirit same God dwells within your heart as a believer. Isn't that amazing? Uh, that's, just, that's just stunning to me. And oh, how thankful I am for that. Stand with me tonight. Uh, one thing I've, discovery I've made in working through the Gospel of John is that I'm pretty sure that my treatment of it is uh, woefully lacking. <laughs> Because it is so rich. It is so rich. Uh, I was thinking earlier today, you remember whenever Jesus was arrested and they all fled. I think sometimes we forget that John didn't. And John was at the foot of the cross beside Jesus' mother and Jesus commits his mother's care into John's. This is why, one of the reasons I think John always referred to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved because John saw firsthand the extent of the love of Christ on display on the cross right before his eyes. And it it affected him in such a way that the rest of his life, he didn't say, I, the apostle John, he said, the one whom Jesus loved. He doesn't even name himself. The emphasis here is the love on display on the cross. And it impacted him all of his life to where he referred to himself from that day forward, the one whom Jesus loved. What if you stopped using your name and just said that? I'm going to start signing letters that way. When I write a letter, I'm just going to write the one whom Jesus loved. I wouldn't do that because it would be raising myself to the level of John. But it's true. It's true. And if you don't believe it, take a good look at the hour. Because that's the display of the love of God. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the cross, for the Christ upon the cross. Lord, forgive us for our dullness of hearing and dullness of seeing, for our hard-heartedness that we don't often contemplate the glories on display there. We are thankful for our salvation and we do understand that we were purchased there by that sacrifice of Christ. We understand much about what happened there, but I feel it in my heart that we are 
missing so much of the glory. So I pray that not only through this text, and I pray this message tonight has been some help for us to think about these things, but Lord, I pray that by your spirit, you would open our eyes to behold your glory as shown and manifest in Christ upon the cross and not just the cross, but the resurrection, which, which indicated that all that was taking place on the cross was indeed sufficient and our debt has been paid. Bless those who've come tonight, Father. I pray that you would be with them in a very special way in their Christian lives as they live this week. Lord, there are many challenges. I asked the young folks this morning, each one individually, what challenges they faced. And it's striking to think that young people as young as 9, 10, and 11 can identify challenges to living the Christian life in their lives. How much greater are those in the lives of adults and their parents and myself included? Father, I pray that you would equip us with a view of your glory that would cause us to desire you and the pursuit of Christ more valuable than any of, the, any of the things of the world that might draw our attention away this week. And I pray that we would be found faithful to you. And Lord, I thank you that the strength and the power for that to be a reality in our lives was purchased for us by Jesus on the cross. Let us live in the fullness of that purpose purchase, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.